The title of this morning's message is A Strong Consolation. This morning we are going to continue to look into chapter 6 of Hebrews, where the author continues to lead his readers on from a warning to not fall back into Judaism and into explaining why these severely persecuted Hebrew baby believers can have a strong consolation and faith for the future. We will pick up where we left off last time, so we will begin in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. But before we begin reading, let me remind you of the immediate context. The last time I ministered, we looked at the warning found in verses 4 through 6 of this chapter about some of the Hebrew baby Christians who were pretending that they were not Christians <laughs> because they were not grounded in the truths of the New Covenant, and they had grown dull to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So they had fallen away from grace, the grace of the New Covenant, and went back into the comfort of legalism. And oddly enough, legalism can be very comforting. You check off your boxes and you know you're good. <laughs> so they went back to what they knew. They did this as a way of trying to save their physical lives and as a way of relieving themselves of the doubts and fears they had regarding their right standing with God. It is completely understandable for the Jews of that time to wonder, maybe with a little help from Satan too, if their persecution was caused by the lack of their law-keeping, since under the Old Covenant, consistent disobedience to the law brought judgment into their lives because they were no longer considered to be right with God. And it was this kind of thinking that caused the author of Hebrews to call them spiritual babies, who simply did not understand their everlasting righteousness by faith in Christ, apart from their works and their sacrifices. Now, those baby believers who had left the household of faith for the comfort and protection of Judaism were still in real physical danger. <laughs> Even though they thought they were saving their lives by going back into Judaism, they were still in danger. The destruction of Jerusalem was coming, and they had unwittingly placed themselves in a position to be a full recipient of all of that judgment, <laughs> a judgment that did not belong to them. The judgment prophesied by Jesus would bring either physical death or enslavement to all those who returned to live among the unbelieving Jews, all because they didn't understand their righteousness. So, after the author warns his readers about not becoming like one of those who fell away, he begins to encourage them and praise them for the evidence of their relationship with Christ as demonstrated by their love for both Jesus and his people. So, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 6, I have it for you in the Weymouth translation. But we, even while we speak in this tone, in other words, he just got done warning them, don't do that, it won't work out well for you. <laughs> even though we speak in this tone, have a happier conviction concerning you, my dearly loved friends. I love this translation because it really makes the point that he knows these people. <laughs> He's not calling them spiritual babies for no good reason. He knows these people. <laughs> but he also knows they have Christ. Even if they don't have a good grounding in the truth of the new covenant, they do still have Christ. Verse 10. For God is not unjust so that he is unmindful of your labor and of the love which you have manifested toward himself in having rendered services to his people and in still rendering them. So these people were 
active in allowing the fruit of the Spirit to be active in their life. They were strong in love, self-sacrificing love. So these believers were obviously good at taking care of each other in those difficult times. And again, they were strong in love, which is the one fruit of the Holy Spirit that is unmistakable. <laughs> you can tell a Christian by their love. <laughs> so I would have considered them spiritually mature. Because Christians who consistently live in agape love are usually emotionally mature as well as spiritually mature. In other words, they are Christ-centered instead of being self-centered. But according to the writer, that didn't make them spiritually mature in their understanding. Verse 11. But we long for each of you to continue to manifest the same earnestness with a view to your enjoying fullness of hope to the very end. This word earnestness, we kind of saw the same word over in chapter 4. <laughs> it has the concept of being a speedy studier. <laughs> to be diligent, to have earnestness, to continue on indoctrinating their own self in the truths of the new covenant in order so that they can have confidence. They needed to have their hearts convinced of the truths of the new covenant and the new covenant righteousness. These baby believers didn't know they had everlasting righteousness. And he wants them to do this because he wants them to enjoy the fullness, the full assurance of hope, confident expectation of good, to the very end. And in this translation, they give the end a capital E because it's referring to the end of the Old Covenant. It's not the end of their life. It's not the end of the world. It's the end of the Old Covenant. So the author here is encouraging his readers to become completely sure of God's goodness and faithfulness toward them by understanding just how secure they are in their righteousness by faith in Jesus. Their secure right standing with God was actually a work of God's hand and not a work of their own. But they had been raised to believe righteousness with God came by doing that which was right. So when they came to the new covenant, they're like, well, it's Jesus plus law-keeping. <laughs> and it's not Jesus plus law-keeping. It's just Jesus. Now, Jesus will help you live like you're actually trying to follow the law. It'll look like you're trying to do that because you're going to be living out of love and out of Christ. And love doesn't let you lie. And love doesn't let you cheat. <laughs> love won't let you do that. Love for Christ and love for others won't let you misbehave. So they didn't need the laws. They needed the understanding that they were safe, that they were secure, that they were approved of only because of Jesus, not because they did the right things. And that was the part that was hard for them, believing that God had made them permanently right with himself as a gift. It was for them, and it still is for most today, <laughs> that this right standing is a gift and not a reward for good behavior. I could be totally naughty. My righteousness doesn't change. My right standing doesn't change. God's approval of me doesn't change. Nothing changes because I'm naughty, except I will reap the fruit of naughtiness, <laughs> which I won't like. <laughs> 
they hadn't gotten that yet. They were still trying to marry doing right with being right. That does not allow you to operate in faith. And the difference between the old covenant of doing to be right and the new covenant of being made right by faith is that we have to actually trust God. Trust that he's good. Trust that he's faithful. Trust that he's dependable. Trust that he keeps his word. See, the new covenant is all about trust. That's why they had some problems. This whole idea of being righteous before God just because of Jesus was hard. Do you remember when you came into the message of grace? You're like, you sure, Jesus? (laughs) Oh, I don't know about this. (laughs) So the author encourages them to become speedy studiers so that they could enjoy Enjoy having the full assurance of the confident expectation of God's goodness in their life, even in the midst of great tribulation. The word for hope in this verse in the Greek is elpis. And according to the Strong's, it's a primary word meaning to anticipate, usually with pleasure. It can be understood as expectation or confidence. And it can be translated both as faith and hope. And that's because faith and hope are very closely related. They contain confidence in God's word and in God's character. When I am in faith, I believe I receive when I pray. I receive it now. I believe I have presently possession of whatever it is I ask for, even if I don't see with my eyeballs yet. So faith is the now. I have it now. I might not know where it's sitting right at the moment, but it's mine. (laughs) I have faith. It's mine. I took possession of it. That's faith. But when I'm in hope, I believe I will possess it someday in the future. It's still faith. It's mine, but I don't have it until the future. That's God's idea of hope faith for the future. We need to walk in faith for today. (laughs) I have what he says I have. I have it. It's mine. But someday I'm going to have this. Okay? So a good example of this is when we talk about the hope of heaven. We are not suggesting that there's some kind of doubt about whether or not we're going to go to heaven. But instead, we're saying, I know heaven is my home right now. It's my possession spiritually speaking. (laughs) But I won't physically enter into heaven until sometime in my distant future. Amen? (laughs) Distant future. (laughs) So I have it now spiritually, but physically it's in my future. It's a present reality. It's really mine. You see, that's hope. It is mine, and I'm going to enter into it. That's hope. And that's the full assurance that comes when I know that I know I have, I possess right now everlasting right standing with God as a gift of his grace through faith in Christ and his sacrifice. Assurance comes from knowing what we possess. So hope is the covenant expectation of goodness, the goodness of God showing up in our future. (laughs) constantly (laughs) and that's what these Hebrew baby Christians needed confidence that they would actually have a future a future and a hope both physically 
and spiritual. Unfortunately, many believers today live like these Hebrew baby Christians. They lack confidence in the finished works of Jesus to make them complete and to make them permanently right with God. So they undertake to provide their own safety, both spiritually and physically, because they are afraid that their sins are more powerful than the blood of Jesus. And they are afraid God won't provide their safety or their rescue because of their sins. They still believe that the acts of sin can separate them from God, which is not true under the new covenant. We moved to a new kingdom. <laughs> sins are not counted against us in this kingdom. That's good news. But most of the church doesn't know it. <laughs> so, what these baby believers needed was to become convinced regarding the too-good-to-be-true gospel of Jesus Christ. It sounds too good to be true. It sounds too easy. That's easy believism. <laughs> yes and amen. <laughs> Believing God is not supposed to be hard. <laughs> Faith is supposed to be easy. <laughs> they needed to become speedy studiers of the new covenant so that the Holy Spirit could open their eyes to see the true beauty of Jesus's finished work. And basically, they needed to be quick about it <laughs> because they were running out of time. And if they undertook the task of keeping themselves safe, like the other baby believers who had fallen back into legalism, then they too would end up dead instead of ending up walking out of Jerusalem as free men, just like Israel had when they walked out of Egypt and through the Red Sea on dry ground. It was all a work of God's hand, <laughs> not a work of their own. <laughs> they simply entered into what God was doing by trusting God's word and God's ability, God's power, God's faithfulness. When we understand just how wonderful he is, it's easy to believe him. <laughs> Both Old Testament Israel and these New Covenant Hebrews had to trust God to do what he promised in order to partake of the promise by faith. They couldn't provide their own safety. They were trying. <laughs> they couldn't provide their own safety, spiritually or physically. They simply needed to put their trust in their God and in his word. So the writer of Hebrews doesn't want his dearly loved Hebrew baby Christians to be like their forefathers who came right up to the edge of the promised land and then chickened out. <laughs> he wanted them to have faith in God's ability. He wanted them to be able to enter into the full assurance of what God had promised, that what God had promised he would do, both spiritually and physically. Yes, there is a physical salvation available in our spiritual salvation. This is a good thing to know. <laughs> so in order for their faith to be activated, they needed to understand who Jesus really was and what Jesus really accomplished. So they needed to get busy, so to speak, absorbing the truths of the new covenant and the truths of Jesus' true identity as the Son of God and as our great high priest. Verse 12. So that you may not become half-hearted, sluggish, <laughs> slothful, lazy, and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but be imitators of those who through faith and patient endurance yuck 
<laughs> patient endurance. Nobody likes patient endurance. We want it now. <laughs> but through faith and patient endurance, we are now heirs of all of the promises of God, and all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. I really like the word stupid in particular. <laughs> I like that it's included in this definition of half-hearted, slothful, because it cracks me up. The writer is basically saying, don't be stupid. <laughs> Trust in Jesus. <laughs> Trusting in our own works for righteousness? That's stupid. <laughs> Trusting in our own ability to keep ourselves safe physically and spiritually? Stupid! <laughs> we don't have to be stupid. We don't have to be dull of hearing. We don't have to be lacking confidence. We can choose instead to be imitators of those who through faith and long-suffering, that's actually what that word means, long-suffering, <laughs> obtain what was promised by God through inheritance. Inheritance is a it's not a reward. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Inheritance is something your forefathers pass down to you and give to you as a gift. Just because you're theirs. <laughs> Sounds just like God. <laughs> we don't earn the promises of God. Instead, we enter into the promises of God by faith in what Jesus has already done for us and as us. Because if we and they understand who Jesus really is and what Jesus has really done, faith or confidence becomes easy. Because we get to rest from our own efforts of trying to produce either our own righteousness or the promises of God through our own strength. So these Hebrew baby believers were struggling to keep their faith in Jesus alone. <laughs> Maybe Jesus isn't quite enough. One sacrifice for all? That would really sound absurd to them. They had sacrifices for everything. How could one sacrifice cover it all? Well, it did. So the writer points them to the very familiar story about Abraham, the father of our faith beginning in verse 13, again in the Weymouth translation. And in the Weymouth translation, the Old Testament quotes are all in all caps, which also cracks me up because it looks like God is yelling his word. <laughs> Have you ever tried to yell at somebody to make them hear you? Well, they're talking and you're like, no, this is the truth. You're trying to get them to get it. That's how I like this scripture. <laughs> God is, yes, you will get the truth of this. <laughs> Starting in verse 13. For when God gave the promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. God did not need to swear an oath to Abraham. Completely unnecessary. God's promise was sufficient. <laughs> God's promise was sufficient because of the character and integrity of the one who promised the almighty God if the almighty God promises then the almighty God will finish he will complete it but because God is so kind and he knows we are so stupid <laughs> he comes down to our level to meet us at our place of weakness 
God swore an oath to his promise because in Abraham's mind, that is what made the promise irrevocable. God was trying to convince Abraham of how sure this promise was, how secure this promise was. In Old Testament times, when you swore an oath and you failed to keep it, you would have to die. Because <laughs> you were swore by God, you have to die now. <laughs> so God used this oath to convince Abraham that the likelihood of this promise not coming to pass would be the same as the likelihood of the one true and living God actually dying. Basically, this proved to Abraham that it was actually possible for God's promise to come completely to fruition. It was impossible to fail because he had sworn an oath. In verse 14, this is where God yells at him, Assuredly, I will bless you <laughs> and bless you. I will increase you and increase you. Abraham was blessed by God, which means he was empowered by God to prosper in every area of his life. And the increase promised here began with the birth of a miraculous son. It all began with yet another promise. Verse 15. And so as a result of patient waiting, there it is. <laughs> Long suffering. <laughs> Our forefather obtained what God had promised. The word translated patient in the Greek means long suffering. And when we're waiting on God to do something, when we don't see that it's coming to pass just yet, it can hurt. <laughs> it's painful because we want it now <laughs> we want the promise to manifest even though we have it we want it to manifest now and end our long suffering this reminds me of COVID-19 remember when COVID-19 was killing people left and right and we were all looking for it to simply be over with <laughs> we had to deal with the fear of getting it the fear that it might kill us or somebody we loved. It was scary. And we didn't know when it would all be over with. We were suffering long. <laughs> and that's where these baby Hebrew believers were at. They wanted their promise of escape to manifest in their present situation because they were hurting. They were really hurting. And they were really suffering long. And they wanted it to just come to an end. But that particular promise was time-bound. Because God is long-suffering, yep, just like him, long-suffering, he doesn't want anyone to perish. So he delayed the coming judgment as long as he could. They should have figured that out. <laughs> but the baby believers hadn't counted on God being so long-suffering. And they grew impatient. All they knew was that it could come to pass at any moment. Or... It could come to pass somewhere between two and five years. Again, kind of like COVID. <laughs> Verse 16. For men swear by what is greater than themselves, and with them an oath in confirmation of a statement always puts an end to dispute. This was way back then. <laughs> if you swore you were telling the truth, they believed you. We don't believe them today. <laughs> But that's how it worked back then. <laughs> Verse 17. In the same way, since it was God's desire to display more convincingly to the heirs of the promise how unchangeable his purpose was, 
I have this also in the King James because of how the promise sounds. I wanted you to see it in both translations. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. Counsel is his purpose, his plan, and his promise. And he confirmed the counsel with the oath. Because it was going to be something he was going to do. <laughs> he was going to make it come to pass. God's purpose, plan, and promise was going to bring forth the seed that would bring forth the salvation of all mankind. The same way Abraham had prophetically acted out the truth that God would offer his one and only son to die on the cross. The Jews knew these stories by heart. They could quote them verbatim. That's why the author doesn't go into all the, the whole story. He knows they know them. But God wanted them to see into the story <laughs> and find the truths that were hidden there the whole time. And the truth was that the future was played out like a scene from the play by Abraham and Isaac. Abraham played the part of God the Father. Abraham's first son was sent away, just like Adam had been sent away from the garden. And then Abraham had a miraculous son who came forth from a promise of God. Hmm, sounds like Jesus. <laughs> and his name was Isaac. And God said that it was necessary that this son should be sacrificed as an offering of worship. So Abraham submitted to God's plan and put Isaac on an altar. But Abraham's son was not without blemish. You can't die for your own sins. So God provided himself instead as a ram caught in the thicket. Or as Abraham had said to Isaac, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. And that sacrifice was completely approved by God. The point being that the only approved sacrifice was the one provided by God. <laughs> and the oath that God swears to Abraham comes right after he submitted to offering his own son of promise on an altar of sacrifice. And we can see this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 18 and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed, as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. I love that. My voice, not my law, not my rules, not my commandments, because thou hast believed my voice and acted on it. <laughs> he responded in faith. That looks like what we call obedience, but it's all about believing what God said. And of course, this seed is Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. Brethren, even a covenant made by a man, to borrow an illustration from daily life, when once formally sanctioned, is not liable to be set aside or added to. Now, the promises were given to Abraham and to his seed. God did not say, and to seeds, as if speaking of many, but, and to your seed, since he spoke only of one, and this is Christ. 
I mean that the covenant which God had already formally made is not abrogated, it's not set aside by the law, which was given 430 years later, so as to annul the promise. For if the inheritance comes through obedience to the law, it no longer comes because of the promise. But, as a matter of fact, God has granted it to Abraham in fulfillment of promise. Granted by grace through faith. <laughs> Again, the Apostle Paul brings this up in the book of Romans in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Again, the promise that he should inherit the world did not come to Abraham or his posterity conditioned by the law, but by faith righteousness. Law makes you self-righteous. <laughs> but the only way you can get these promises is by faith righteousness. For if it is the righteous through law who are heirs, that would be the Jews, then faith is useless and the promise counts for nothing. But we already know that's not possible because <laughs> God's <swore>. war. <laughs> for the law inflicts punishment. But where no law exists, there can be no violation of the law. We're not under the law. Guess what? We can't break it. <laughs> we're not lawbreakers. Even when we fall short of God's glorious perfection, we're not under the law. We're not trying to make ourselves right. We're believing on Jesus. <laughs> no violation of law, then there's no separation. We're not under the law, therefore we cannot be held as being guilty of breaking it. We're innocent, even when we're really not. <laughs> but then again, we really are. Verse 16. All depends on faith. Our spiritual salvation and our physical salvation, it all depends on faith. That acceptance with God might be an act of pure grace. Grace is God's absolutely free, loving kindness. He so loved the world. He so loves you and me. He gave us this amazing gift. It's by grace. Salvation is only of grace by faith. This is the only truth that can give us peace and comfort. It's the rest of faith found only in God's absolutely free, loving kindness. Absolutely free, he loves us. We're absolutely free. For no good reason, he loves us. <laughs> Just because that's who he is. God in his grace provided Christ, the Son of God, as the Lamb. The only Lamb provided by God himself. The one and only Lamb of God that was the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. None of the lambs killed throughout the whole Old Testament, none of them gave them righteousness and new life. It covered their guilt. That's all it did. It didn't change them. It didn't deliver them. It didn't make them into new creations. The old covenant <laughs> couldn't do what God wanted it to do. All of this was promised and sworn to by God himself so that those who received the sacrificed and risen son provided by God could have strong consolation, comfort, and encouragement to continue to have faith in God's promises. If we understand God's righteousness, faith in God's promises are easy. 
I like the word consolation because it infers comfort to those who are suffering. And if you live under the law, you put yourself under requirements, you will be suffering <laughs> because you will fall short of God's glorious perfection. Hebrew baby balloons were suffering, and not just because of the Jewish and Roman authorities, but because they were unskilled. I love that. They were unskilled in the word of righteousness. What was their problem? Knowledge. They didn't know what they had, and so they didn't know what they had. They couldn't believe for it. They were unskilled in the word of righteousness. In other words, they had not yet entered into the promised rest of and this lack of rest would keep them wandering around the desert of fear and doubt and unbelief and condemnation and suffering <laughs> which would only produce more self-condemnation and I say self-condemnation because for those in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation we cannot be condemned for breaking a law that isn't in our covenant we're not under the law, so we can't get there from here. <laughs> they kept trying to get there from there. No, the Hebrew baby believers had Jesus living on the inside. These were real believers. And the Holy Spirit was producing the fruit of agape love in them and through them. But they did not understand what Jesus had actually done for them. So they weren't trusting in his work at the cross, or his work as their high priest in heaven. They kept looking to their own abilities to save themselves, physically and spiritually. I was once very much like these Hebrew baby believers. I knew I had Jesus living on the inside of me, and I knew the Holy Spirit was bringing forth his fruit in my life. But when I fell short of my Father's glorious perfection, I would be crushed. And that's because I thought I was what I did. If I failed, I was a failure. If I sinned, I was a sinner. If I did something wrong, then there must be something really wrong with who I am. <laughs> and if I did something wrong, then I saw myself as out of fellowship with my father. So I would beat myself up for days, <laughs> sometimes weeks. I actually beat myself up for a year for, for one thing I did wrong. <laughs> and you know what it was? I didn't give a tongue in church. Our big church that we used to go to in Rockford, one of the associate pastors did not like for people to speak out in tongues because he wasn't comfortable interpreting. And you know what God did? <laughs> he says, speak out in tongues. No way. <laughs> he doesn't like that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I beat myself up for over a year for that. You see, I made it a point to try to never tell God no. <laughs> and so when I felt I was in a position where I had to tell God no, I was mad, and I failed, and I punished myself for a whole year. Finally, God says, just get off the hook already. <laughs> Give it up, girl. <laughs> I didn't understand my righteousness. I didn't understand I had already been made righteous, holy, and continuously acceptable to my Father, even if I said no. So when God revealed it to me, oh my goodness, what a gift! <laughs> what a rest! <laughs> I had a Father who would never shame me. 
deride me, punish me, abandon me, break my legs. <laughs> I had a father who ran to me. I have never been taught that. I never knew there was an everlasting righteousness. Nobody ever told me about it. So I was like these Hebrew baby believers. I was stupid. <laughs> I was bringing God all kinds of works and apologies and sorrows and crying and beating myself up. Lots of dead works that never actually made me feel better. And not only did I not feel better, it would cause me to have no confidence that my father would hear my prayers. Because you're out of fellowship. God can't hear you. Oh, covenant. <laughs> God hears me just fine. It lives right in here. <laughs> he can't help but hear me. <laughs> I didn't know I had continuous access to my Heavenly Father even when I sinned. And to be perfectly honest, I wasn't trying to sin. <laughs> I was working very hard, just like the Hebrew baby believers, working hard to make God happy. Look, God, I'm trying really hard here. And I never made it. <laughs> I never got to perfect. But then the message of grace entered my life, and I found out God had already beaten me to it. He had already made me perfect and complete in my spirit. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he, Jesus, has perfected forever them that are, are sanctified. <laughs> I'm not working to become sanctified. I am sanctified. I am perfect in my spirit. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So, God doesn't just see me as if I was perfect. <laughs> He's not playing a game where he takes a little looking glass and says, oh, I can see Jesus in there. <laughs> no, he doesn't look at me as if I'm righteous. He made me righteous. He made me perfect in my spirit. Now, of course, because he lives in here, he's very aware that I can fall short of his glorious perfection on the outside. And only on the outside. I can fall short by doing or believing something that's stupid. <laughs> Just like these Hebrew baby believers. But all of my outside stupid stuff doesn't change my inside glorious stuff. Because of Jesus, I am always welcome in my Father's presence at the throne of grace. Not the throne of judgment, the throne of grace. Continuing verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, plan, and promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, both physically and spiritually, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the confident expectation of good showing up in our lives. The confident expectation is that God will keep his promises to us. Not because we do good, but because we have complete confidence in the blood of the Lamb that has made us forever righteous. 
And this confident expectation of God's goodness showing up in our lives is the anchor that holds us steady and stable in the midst of terrible storms. As long as we know we are forever righteous, then we can rest by faith in our Father's goodness and faithfulness. It's only available by faith in the blood of the Lamb of God. Verse 19. We have this, this hope, this confident expectation that God answers our prayers. He brings forth the promises in our life, the things that only he can do. We have this confidence that we are forever righteous. It's if you believe you are forever righteous, then you can believe that God will give you anything you want. He has already granted us everything we need for life and godliness through the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are apprehended by the promises. <laughs> and we can apprehend the promises by believing that we are righteous and that there's no reason for our God to say no to us. He's already granted everything we need. So we have this confident expectation of good as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is found in the inner place behind the curtain? The throne of grace. The Old Testament Ark of the Covenant was always considered to be the place where the presence of God would sit. <laughs> so it was considered God's throne on earth. So when Jesus entered within the veil in heaven, he entered into the very throne room of God. And he was the forerunner. In other words, he was the first righteous human being to enter into the throne room of heaven. And through his blood and his body, he opened the throne room to any human being who would believe on him. He was a human and he made a way for all the humans to become righteous and enter into the very throne room of our Father. While we are here on earth, we live in the Holy of Holies, in Christ spiritually. But someday our faith will be made sight, and we will see him as he is in his physical reality and glory. We're going to like it. <laughs> and we're going to look really good too. <laughs> Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Confession is that Jesus is enough. His blood has made us forever righteous, so we have a free pass into the throne room. <laughs> For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's the whole point. That's why he swore to Abraham. He says, I understand your weakness. I know you can't comprehend just how big and how wonderful I am. I'm going to help you. <laughs> I'll swear an oath to my promise. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, being completely sure of God's goodness and faithfulness to us. Confidence because of the blood of the Lamb. Confidence that He has done it all and He has made us righteous as a gift of His grace. Let us draw near to the throne of grace, not the throne of punishment, not the throne of wrath, not the throne of scolding, 
No. If we're falling short, you know what we need? Grace. <laughs> Grace to see things his way. Grace to accept his power. Grace. Let's draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We never need to have any apprehension about approaching our Father's throne. Jesus has paid our sin debt in full and made us new creations that are forever in right standing with God. We have every reason to trust him to keep his promises to us and to be good to us. He likes to be good to us. <laughs> the Hebrew baby believers needed once again to become convinced of their everlasting right standing with God as a gift of his grace because they were not sure that they were acceptable to God through the blood of Jesus. Because they weren't sure, their faith was thwarted by the fear that God would not receive them at the throne of grace because of their sins and failures. So they struggled to have confidence in Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. So what did they need to do? They needed to become speedy studiers of the truth of the new covenant. They needed to let the Holy Spirit convince them salvation is a gift of God's grace completely and totally through the blood of Jesus, through the blood of the Lamb. They needed to hear the spoken word of Christ over and over and over again until the fears and doubts were replaced by faith in God's amazing grace. Mark is always telling people that the message of grace is a slow drip. <laughs> you see, God's already done it all, but we can be slow. <laughs> we can be stupid. <laughs> we can be not very good at listening. <laughs> And then when I got it, it was slippery. <laughs> I kept running into scary scriptures in Hebrews <laughs> that sounded like, eh, this isn't what I was taught it was. But you see, that was the baby Hebrews problem. They didn't know that Jesus was enough. So he tells them this story that they've heard their whole life. He says, but I want you to see what God was really talking about. He was talking about one sacrifice that would do well. But because God provided it, God would accept it. He needed to change their mind to get out of the old covenant and into the new and really believe that they had everlasting righteousness. It's so important. When I was doing this message, I thought, you know, it makes such sense now. I don't try to sin. Sorry. <laughs> I don't try to sin. So I don't even have a sin consciousness. I can't even remember the last time God said, <clears throat> excuse you. <laughs> Not because I'm perfect outwardly, but because I have confidence in my perfection inwardly. And the more we understand the who and what we really are, it's easy to believe God. It was hard for them to believe God because they thought God was judging everything they did. They thought if they said no, <laughs> they were in trouble for a whole year. <laughs> God's not that way. The new covenant's not that way. If we know who and what we have, we can have complete confidence. God swore an oath. It has come to pass exactly like he said it would. An everlasting righteousness and everlasting salvation. Amen? Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father God, for the book of Hebrews. 
We thank you, Father God, that you give us pictures that we can look into. We can look into the story about these baby Hebrew Christians who weren't sure of all that you had really done. They believed in you. They had you. They possessed you. They were growing in the fruits of the Spirit. But you couldn't get them to believe <laughs> that you would keep them safe, that you would provide their every need, that you would lead them and guide them into all truth and into all righteousness and into all that you had for them. You had a promised land for them to enter. You had a great escape for them to partake in. But they needed to be convinced that they were righteous enough to possess it. They needed to believe that there was nothing between them and you that would keep you from blessing them. I ask that you help us to continue to renew our mind to the fact when I fall short, it doesn't change anything between you and me. Nothing. The more I know that I am righteous, the more and more I walk out my righteousness. The more I know that you accepted me as I am, the more I become more like you. I thank you, Father God, that you are always transforming us through the renewing of our mind. You've already transformed us spiritually. You're only now helping us get our life in order. We thank you, Father God, that, that you do. You always are changing our minds so we can believe you and trust you more and more. And we thank you, Father God, that you are a God of salvation. Spiritually, physically, financially, emotionally, in every area of the life you have designed for us to be safe. In Jesus' name. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.